Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Movie Mentors. I'm your host, Jeremy Boros, and today we're sitting down with the legendary film and TV producer, Dan Jinks. Best known for winning an Academy Award for the now classic American Beauty, Dan is the man behind some of the most imaginative and impactful films and TV shows of the last 20 years. We're talking Big Fish, directed by Tim Burton, Milk, directed by Gus Van Sant, The Nines, directed by John August, and the Emmy-winning hit show Pushing Daisies from Brian Fuller, just to name a few. A producer of incredible range, from thriller films to romantic comedies, medical dramas to Broadway musicals, Dan stands in the pantheon of truly great producers. So please, sit back and enjoy this insightful conversation with today's mentor, Dan Jinx. Dan Jinx, thank you so much for being here and doing this with me. My pleasure. I just want to ask a very simple, straightforward question to start. What are the qualities of a great producer? Well, that's, a, that's a very interesting question. I think uh, being a great producer, well, it's a lot of things. I think being able to see the big picture and always trying, for me, it's always trying to keep the writer's intentions in mind throughout the entire process that that everybody who gets involved in something got involved because of uh, uh, something that a writer wrote. And I think uh, one should never lose track of that and always respect that throughout the process, whatever that means when it comes to, whether that means hiring a director, uh, to casting, uh, to the look and feel of something, to how you know how something is executed throughout the whole process, but being able to always see that big picture. Uh, I mean, there's a million parts to the job. I think a, an important part of the job is to see a problem when it's a small problem before it snowballs into a big problem, I think is a, a kind of an essential quality for a producer to have. When I'm shooting something and, and everything's going well, then on set, uh, there's not a lot for me to do. When I uh, have to do something on set, it's usually when there's something that's not going particularly well. But that's what I'm there for. Sometimes I'm there to be a second set of eyes for uh, a, a director. Um, sometimes I'm just there to put out whatever fires are, are happening to make sure we're on schedule, on budget. The hardest part of my job is finding finding good material. You grew up loving musical theater, mostly, right? You you went to NYU for acting? You know, I grew up, uh, I was a, a I, well, first of all, I was always obsessed with show business in general, uh, whereas, you know, a lot of kids like movies and TV. I was obsessed with movies and TV, uh, and especially anything sort of behind the scenes, like how, if there was something on TV about how something was made, I was fascinated by it. Any chance to see, uh, get a glimpse behind the scenes of something. But I always was especially fascinated by live theater. I, I always felt very special sitting in an audience when something was being performed, knowing that those actors were doing it just for the people that were sitting there in that theater. They were going to do it again the next night, but it wasn't going to be the same the next night. Those That performance was just for us. And to this day, I'm a, a huge, huge theater geek. And so was NYU your first choice to be an actor? Oh, it, it absolutely was. Uh, a, I wanted to go to NYU. 
B, I wanted to be in New York City. That was the theater capital of the world, and uh, I managed to see a ridiculous amount of theater during my four years at NYU, and I didn't have any money. I was, you know, like most kids in college don't have a lot of money, but I figured out ways to see everything that I could for either free or for next to nothing. And if, if NYU got 10 tickets to some show and previews, I had one of those tickets. I, I kind of figured out how to how to make all that stuff work. One thing I did was, uh, so I was in the drama school studying at, studying, uh, at the Lee Strasberg Theater at Institute Strasburg. through NYU. The woman who was running undergraduate drama was a woman named Evangeline Morphos. And she was really big on bringing in big names to any way she could. And we had a class called Introduction to New York Theater. And she had some of the biggest people working in the theater were coming in to talk to this, this class. And she also would, would try to get big names to teach, teach classes then. And so all these cool people were coming through the school and I wanted to get to know them. So I went to her and said, hey, uh, this department newsletter was, the, the department had like a one page newsletter that was really not a very good newsletter. It was just sort of like some, a bunch of announcements that somebody spent a couple hours putting together. And I said, what if I took this and turned it into something where there were actually interviews with, some, with the people who were coming through there so that everybody had access, everybody in the department had access to those people in a way that they might not if they weren't in that particular class. And she loved it because it was letting the whole student body know all the cool names that were coming in. I loved it because then I got to meet all these people and talk to all these people. So I, from people like playwright Wendy Wasserstein to, to um, Edward Gorey, um, there were a lot of really fascinating people that came through that I interviewed. But uh, there was a moment that... Uh, was, was very much an extracurricular that was uh, the, the turning point in my career that happened uh, my senior year at NYU. In addition to the plays that the school would produce, um, there was a black box theater where students could produce their own shows. It was all done by the Student Advisory Council, made all the decisions, and I was on the Student Advisory Council and somebody dropped out of their show two weeks before it was going to go up. So this theater was just going to go dark for, for the week, this black box theater. So I went to the Student Advisory Council and said, hey, can I put a show on? And they kind of looked at me like, well, you'd have to put a show on in two weeks. And I said, well, I have an idea. Let me see if it works. And you know, they said, well, we have nothing to lose. It's going to go dark. So they sort of rolled their eyes and said, sure. And I called up all my friends that I thought were really, really funny and who were in the drama school and said, we're going to do a show in the style of Saturday Night Live, but it will be about life as a drama student at NYU. And it'll be songs and it'll be sketches. And like Saturday Night Live, anything that's not working really well, we're going to cut the night before. And everybody got super excited about it. And we put together a great collection of, of uh, skits and songs and put it on and it ended up being not just successful but by far the most successful student produced show that anybody had done in this you know probably in a couple of years so much so that every show sold out people were calling me in my dorm room saying can you get me in to see your show? We added a, a, a performance at one o'clock in the morning that sold out. It was like just crazy successful. And I had never 
been a part of something like that before that was, uh, I hadn't experienced that kind of success with anything that I had put together. That was a brand new feeling for me. It was a brand new thing to put something together fully like that. And it was a, a real turning point for me. It was the first moment when I said, maybe I should think about this producing thing because I, I enjoyed the experience and I uh, liked the fact that, that it seemed to go over really well. So was that pretty much a clean break from acting for you? Pretty much. I also, my senior year at NYU, I did an internship and I interned at a, a big New York casting office. So working in a casting office, you really, really get a sense of what actors go through. And I sort of hated it. It was really like, that, that was kind of the, when I was sort of leaning towards not being an actor, that was the final nail in the coffin. Um, but from my internship, I got my first two paying jobs in the theater. Uh, which was, so uh, it was everything you want an internship to be when you actually get paying jobs directly as a result of it. So you were interning in theater for a while, and then at what point did you start working with Martin Bregman? I worked in the theater for my first two to three years after college. I honestly thought, when I decided I was going to be a producer, I thought, oh, I'll produce Broadway. And after you work in the theater for a, a little bit, you realize that, uh, Producing on Broadway is in large part about the ability to raise money. And I had no, I you know, was a poor kid right out of college. I didn't know how to raise millions and millions of dollars. And one of my best friends from NYU, uh, who's still one of my best friends, uh, a guy named uh, David Genilari, who's now a very, very successful TV producer, uh, he was working uh, in development in New York for a company called Niederlander Television and Film. And I was such a theater geek that he used to call me up and ask me questions about playwrights because I knew the theater world so well. And that's kind of how I learned what a, a development job was. And so I went to, I like just decided I was gonna try to find one of those in New York, which there are very, very few motion picture TV development jobs in New York, but I found one working for a producer named Aaron Russo. And that was my uh, film school. I went to work for him when I was 24. Um, I started out as his assistant, and about a week and a half later, he made me his development executive. That's uh, lucky. Which was really, really very lucky for the same exact salary, by the way. That, here I got this big promotion. <laughs> I, his assistant job paid $500 a week. His head of development job paid $500 a week. So like, it was uh, make, making the, the, the big bucks. Um, and uh, Got to start somewhere. Got to start somewhere. But it, listen, it was my film school. I went to drama school and I learned a lot about making movies, a lot about what not to do working for him. And he eventually um, moved me to L.A. And it was soon after I moved to L.A. that I went to work for um, Martin Bregman. Right. And I was looking at your IMDb. And your first credit on there is as a full producer on Nothing to Lose. So I have a, I mean, it's a good segue for, for a second. You know, there are a lot of people that might be listening who are assistants to producers or working at production companies. How do you, how did that happen for you in the sense of like, I see a lot of those people start as an associate producer for a while, then maybe they get a co-producer, then they work their way up the ladder for you it looks like you got in there pretty quickly. And, and I, it, it looks that way, but indeed that would not be the case. Uh, so I was working for Marty Bregman for a while and I brought in 
um, a couple of uh, pretty high-profile projects. Um, one of them was a screenplay called Nothing to Lose by a writer named Steve Odekirk, who was a pretty new screenwriter. And one of the things that I learned about Marty Bregman is he he had a very different philosophy than, than me about writers. I, I love writers, and I probably have more great writer friends than, than any other category of friend. And he thought uh, it was a producer's job to go to a battle with a writer or with a director. And, uh, <laughs> and he really went to battle with Steve Odekirk, and he basically fired Steve from this project. Well, then something kind of great happened, that Steve became one of the top comedy writers in the entire business very quickly. But Marty wasn't seeing that yet or believing that. And uh, we were trying to uh, find a director for it. And I went to Sundance and I ended up staying in a condo with a woman named uh, Cher Stallings. And she was the development executive for the director, Frank Oz, who I thought would be a perfect choice for it. And I uh, asked her if she would read the script and she did and she really liked it. And she gave it to Frank Oz and Frank Oz really liked it. And I said, look, here's the situation. This writer is a star. He's hugely talented, but Marty Bregman isn't seeing it. But he's, he's so enamored with Frank that if Frank says, well, we've got to get this guy back in here to, to do some work, uh, that it'll ha all happen. And uh, Frank couldn't have been better. He completely got what to, what to do. And in the meeting, he said, well, let's bring back Steve Odekirk. And Marty's going, of course, we've got to bring back Steve. <laughs> So, uh, so I, I had kind of every step of the way been shepherding this project, and fortunately, Marty agreed to uh, let me be a producer on it with him, and that was my the first thing that I produced. But I had by the time that movie was made, I had been working for him for several years. So it, 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 it while it probably looks on my resume like, oh look, this guy got a producing credit right away. Uh, it was a, a, a long few years of really trying to push that and other things forward. While working for him, I also brought in a book uh, called uh, The Bone Collector that um, I set up at Universal, and then I uh, left. And I never had a contract for Marty Bregman. With Marty Bregman, I worked for him for five years, and it ended up being a good thing on Nothing to Lose because I ended up getting uh, probably a better credit than I would have had if I did have a contract. But uh, when it came to The Bone Collector... Uh, I had to fight like crazy to get an executive producer credit, uh, which I did, but it was uh, uh, it wasn't an easy thing to to get. What do you expect from a great assistant? And do you think there's ever an appropriate time for someone in that position to say, "Can I be credited on this for the work that I did?" You know, I, it's hard for me to answer that from the assistant point of view, because I was really an assistant for about a week and a half. I was a development executive, executive yeah. for a lot of years. Well, and even then, yeah. It's all, it all depends on the executive. Uh, I've had some executives work for me who sort of come in from day one feeling like they're entitled to everything where without putting any real uh, effort into it. And uh, I like somebody that really shows some uh, initiative. Uh, and, uh, and I'm very, very happy to, uh, reward that. I, I think that, uh, uh, it's really important to mentor people and I, and I enjoy doing it, uh, when somebody is, is eager and wanting to put the work in. Going back a little bit to challenges, I mean, American Beauty, again, seems like a miracle 
success story. When I went back and watched the DVD uh, special features on it, I didn't realize that that was Sam Mendy's first feature. It was your first production with Bruce Cohen, right? It seems like this amalgamation just worked so effortlessly. Is that true? Or <laughs> what What are we not seeing? What were the challenges with that? Did they occur during the production or pre-production? Or was it actually after all the initial success of the Oscar? You know, uh, the the biggest challenge, I would say, uh, with getting American Beauty made, it was someone... I'm going to leave their name out of this, but uh, somebody at DreamWorks positioned it to Steven Spielberg that it could be made for $8 million without talking to anybody in physical production, without talking to me or my producing partner, uh, just on their own. When DreamWorks did a budget for it, with paying everybody's scale without any stars, the budget came out to $12.5 million. Now, I know you're thinking, oh, this is a big studio. What's the big deal? But the difference between $8 million and $12.5 is a lot. We ended up making the movie for about $15 million. But I will tell you, every step of the way was a struggle. We, were, we, we went into it under-budgeted, but the people who work in physical production at DreamWorks thought we were spending way too much money. And this was, nobody was making much money on this. And Bruce Cohen, my producing partner, and I, we were young producers. So we had fees that weren't very big. And DreamWorks came to us and asked us to defer a big part of our fee, which, of course, we did. But everybody was doing this for uh, not much money. And it was, uh, it was really hard. It, every day was a struggle to get the day made because we, were, we, we just had an unrealistic schedule to go in with. Who was our savior in this was, was Steven Spielberg. He saw the first few days of dailies and saw the problem that we were having with trying to make this very ambitious movie on the schedule that we had been given. And he gave us more days. Initially, he gave us, you know, a, a few more days. And ultimately, we ended up, I think we started out at maybe 42 and ended up at 48. I don't remember exactly, mm. something like that. But we ended up, we, we got enough days that we were able to, to make the film. And, but uh, it was, a, it was a, a real challenge to, to get that made. And we also had both of our stars, Kevin Spacey and Annette Bening, had plays right after. And because they weren't making big money and they were both theater animals, they these were plays that were locked into dates. So we couldn't, it wasn't like we could keep going on and on and on. So here we were working very long days, but because they each had hard stop dates, we started working six day weeks. So when you're working 15, 16 hour days, and then you start doing that six days a week, it's really, really exhausting. And, uh, and he, when you're a producer, when you're, especially when this is a movie that there were so many moving parts and things we were trying to make sure we got right, uh, we were always in early and then we were dailies at the end. So it was uh, certainly the hardest uh, experience I ever had was that shoot. So going back to my first question, I would say part of what makes a great producer is a great poker face, it sounds like. Uh, there are times when it certainly is very good to have a good poker face because the last thing you want to do is bring the the stress that you're getting from the studio onto the set. That is not helpful to anyone. 
And uh, so certainly Bruce and I tried very, very hard to keep that away. There was one moment when we, we just needed more uh, and like another day that we said to Sam Mendes, we said, look, we, we, now we need you. And we went in with Sam to the guy who's the head of physical production and like begged for another shooting day, which they ultimately gave us. But, you know, it was, it was sort of pulling teeth to, to get it. Fortunately, uh, I'll, I'll, by the way, I'll tell you a funny story. We're in this meeting, and the guy who was the head of physical production at DreamWorks said, look, I don't know who's going to go see this movie. I don't think my wife will see this movie, which is a horrible thing to say to the director and the producers of the film and people who are working like crazy, who really believed in this movie. But it was clear that he didn't believe in it. And, and that was part of why he was being so hard on us. Of course, the film went on to not only be successful, but it ended up becoming uh, successful internationally. It was, it was a huge, huge hit. DreamWorks made an, an enormous amount of money from it. But uh, making it was a, a, a great challenge. It was an experience that was amazing, one of the great experiences of my life, but also one of the hardest experiences of my life. I'm so glad the truth is coming out because if people just look you up on IMDb, it's like you're a prodigy. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about how you and Bruce Cohen worked together and what your collaboration was like? I approached, well, I, when I was working for Marty Bregman, I, and I had produced my first movie, Nothing to Lose. It was right around the time Nothing to Lose was coming out that I was really getting the itch to move on to another job. I didn't want to leave there until that movie came out because I wanted to have the entire experience of not only making a movie, but being there for the whole release and all of that, and uh, which really was uh, exciting. And I was getting approached about other jobs, but they were working for other producers. And after working for three years for the first producer and then um, uh, five plus years for Marty Bregman. I just didn't want to do it again. So I kind of thought, let me try going out on my own. And I didn't want to do it by myself. I was a little bit nervous about, because I was, you know, very young and, and I had a lot of development experience, but I only had one full producer credit at this point. Still in your twenties. Yeah. Um, I think I was in my early thirties at this point. So I, I thought, um, that having a producing partner would be helpful and I knew Bruce Cohen through some political work that we had done together. And I knew that his production had been really physical. His, his experience had been physical production. He had been um, an AD for years, including on two movies for Steven Spielberg. And uh, so I thought that would be a good uh, match. It was very funny. We, uh, when I first took him to breakfast to pitch him this, he said, yes, let's do it. And I said, no, Bruce. You have to think about this. This is a giant decision. We're talking about starting a company together. And he goes, okay, I'll think about it, but we're doing it. <laughs> it uh, anyway, we did, uh, and, and we, uh, we had a great partnership. What does it take to start a production company? We started a production company working out of Bruce Cohen's living room. Um, we didn't have an office. We just decided let's keep our overhead really low. And Bruce had been working in the business for longer than me, but his his contacts were, he didn't know the agent world and the writer world particularly well. And so it was really on me to hustle uh, projects. And so I, I called on every agent that I, I knew. And there were a few people who were just great. Just having a few people who are in your corner when you're starting something, then the the 
the huge piece of luck was that uh, uh, I got the script to American Beauty just a few months after starting the company. So with American Beauty, we're talking about feeling a bit constrained on resources, trying to get that film made. With Big Fish, was it a similar feeling or with such a huge budget like that? And so many, I mean, and if anyone who's seen the movie knows how many scenes and characters and elements there are to it, was it, is that more nerve wracking when you have too much money? Is there anything to be concerned oh. about? <laughs> or was it not I, enough still? I, I've, I've never heard of a movie where you have too much money. Oh, okay. But I, I will tell you, it was a very, very different experience doing Big Fish um, as doing any of the other movies that I had done because we had a superstar director in Tim Burton. And because Tim is one of those people that, that has delivered enough very big hits to studios and they really wanted him, they don't say no to him much. Um, I will say that a Amy Pascal, who was running Sony Pictures, who was a huge champion of this, this movie, she did bring in her boss, who was a guy named, uh, no longer with us, named John Callie, before she greenlit it. I remember we had a meeting. I think the only time maybe I met John Callie was, it was a meeting with Tim Burton at Sony with Amy and Amy brought John in just to make sure that she wanted cover. She wanted to make sure that, that you know, her boss was okay with this movie uh, being made. But um, uh, that was the great luxury was that because of Tim, the budget battles were, weren't like they've had on most of the things that I've, you sure. know, like mo mo most common, most movies have some kind of budget issues and they weren't as extreme on that. I mean, most people are familiar with Tim Burton's work and what a visionary he is. W was there anything about him that surprised you that the average person may not know about him and the way that he works? You know, um, he is a, well, this is not a surprise to anybody. He's, he's absolutely a genius and, and, and such a visionary. Um, he knew that this was a script that he was not the original uh, uh, Director on. I don't know if this has ever been out, but it's enough years have gone by. But but it's something that that um, uh, Steven Spielberg was going to direct for for about two years, and when um, fortunately when Steven decided he wasn't going to do it, it was sent to Tim, and Tim really really liked it, and I, uh, uh, I think Tim did a, an amazing job with it. Tim was always very respectful about the script because he knew that that I had been developing the script for for quite a while with John August, the, the writer, who, who um, is crazy, crazy talented, and I've been lucky to work with a few times. But uh, when it comes to most aspects of the movie, Tim wants to do what he wants to do. There isn't the same kind of collaboration that I've experienced with most of the directors that, I, that I've worked with, especially on the set. Tim had a, a, a producing partner, um, a man named Richard Zanuck, and Richard Zanuck would never give Tim a note on a set. And I, I saw that really Tim doesn't want to get a note from anybody when he's shooting, that he knows what he wants and that's what he wants. Fortunately, what he wants is, is pretty sensational. Um, casting, uh, we, I was much more involved in. I was actually shooting a, a movie called Down With Love that Ewan McGregor was the male lead in. And that's that's was um, a big part of how Ewan ended up starring in Big Fish. Okay. And it was actually the cool time when I actually got to physically hand a script to the movie star and say, this is being offered to you right here, right now. <laughs> and and it, while we were shooting this other movie, and uh, it was cool to do two movies in a row with Ewan, who I think is a spectacularly talented actor. Yeah, that that's absolutely one of my all-time favorite films. 
Big Fish? Big Fish. Oh, yeah. yeah. Nice. American Beauty as well, but awesome. Big Fish. Um, and my whole family, it just, it really spoke to us. And Albert Finney, who just reminds us so much of my father's father. And yeah, it's a beautiful film. This is kind of an interesting question that I think I only have because I watched so many of your projects back to back over the past two weeks. Um, I'm not Elvis Mitchell or a film cinema studies person, but I noticed something with American Beauty, with Big Fish, with Milk, with The Forgotten, even The Nines and Pushing Daisies. There's a real consistency and it's an examination of the fragility of life and humanity through the lens of death. And death plays a very clear role in, in all of those projects. I was wondering if that's something that you're, you are conscious of or wrestling with some element of that, or if it just happenstance that it's that way. I'm going to tell you something, honestly, that nobody has ever pointed that out before. I don't think anybody's ever watched all my projects within a week before, but it never, uh, until you said that, it, it had not occurred to me that... Uh, that death is certainly a role in, in all of those things. You know, I, I'm always attracted to really good writing, and, and I, I think it's a coincidence that all of those things, which I think are all beautifully, beautifully written, um, two of them by my, my good friend John August, but that death plays a role in uh, all of those. Well, we can't make a movie about life if we don't talk about death, but... It was just, I don't know, it was just interesting. I was wondering if... I'm, I'm fascinated. I hadn't thought about it before. It's a, a new, a yeah. new uh, concept to me. Yeah. In, in 2007, you transitioned over to doing TV with Traveler. Was that your first TV That's project? Right. Just in terms of the nuts and bolts of producing for television, is there a big difference from film or is it... You know, uh, I'll tell you the thing I like about TV is, uh, well, this is really true of network TV, um, is the pace of it all. You, you, almost all network TV is sold as a pitch. So you find out within usually a day if your pitch is sold. And then you know pretty quickly uh, within a week or two if your pilot is going to get made. And then you know basically within a week or so if your pilot is going to series. And there's something very refreshing about that timetable. Uh, the movie business can things can move very slowly at times. Sometimes things can move quickly. I, ironically, the two movies for which I was nominated for an Oscar, American Beauty and, and Milk, were both things that happened pretty fast. Whereas, you know, Big Fish took several years to to uh, get made. But uh, I do really like making movies, and I'm I'm happy that now I have a few movie things going because it was it's interesting when you're doing when you have a deal that's tied to a TV studio, you can be really, really busy and sell them a bunch of things and make a pilot. But then if nothing gets made, people look at your resume and they think, oh, Dan left the business for a year. And indeed, you were working really, really hard, but you weren't just nothing was actually getting on the air, which is a, it's a frustrating experience after uh, a while. I like doing, but I, you know, I like doing both. And most people now who are active producers will do both film and TV. I, I'm interested about what you said, you know, in those times when maybe you're, you've made a pilot or you've got a lot of things in development, but nothing's quite clicking yet. How does a producer stay spiritually and financially afloat in those times? Well, fortunately, when I was doing that, I was um, under a deal. So for, for uh, many years, I had a, a, a TV deal through Warner Brothers 
And then when that ended, I went over to CBS and was under an, uh, uh, a deal where I was exclusive to them for TV. You obviously make more money if, if you have a series on the air, but uh, you're still making money from them, um, from your overall deal, and then obviously more money if you make a pilot, et cetera. So uh, uh, that's how you support yourself. And there are a lot of people who are under deals. I, you know, like when I was at CBS, there were certainly were a huge number of deals, but there might be three new dramas on the air. So a lot of people were in the same boat that I was in, where we were working like crazy and then nothing to show for it at the end of the year. What about spiritually? How do you take care of yourself? Do you get well, stressed easily? Uh, you know, I, I, I've learned how to, when something doesn't happen, to say next. But while there are certainly some great things about network TV, and I don't ever want to say I won't do network TV again, my taste is so much more in the cable streaming space. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to be working on things now that are just more things that I watch. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't watch that much network TV. There's just not many things that I I love, and there's so many things that I love that are, you know, on Netflix and HBO and Showtime and Amazon. So. Well, it's really exciting to me because I I love your taste. I think you have an amazing eye for good material. Oh, that's that's very sweet. Thank and you. it does, and a lot of it does have that darker edge that I think works well for cable. And what I'm curious about is um, with Milk and other films of that budget, which we've heard so many times. Oh, they don't make movies for that budget anymore. I'm genuinely curious why. You know, if you can make a movie for fifteen or twenty million dollars, that seems easier than a hundred million dollars and you can get a better return and well here's my theory and i don't say this with any any joy because i i i'm a movie guy i love going to the movies i'm i'm an academy member so every year i get dozens and dozens of dvds sent and i still will see everything i can in a theater because i like that experience i like sitting in the dark with a few hundred people and we're all watching the same thing at the same time i just enjoy that and i like the big screen and all that that said, uh, a huge amount of Americans have have bought cheap big TVs, put them in their their living rooms, and it is harder than ever to get people out of the house to see a movie. Around the same time, the the DVD market is virtually non-existent now, and that's really where if a film didn't make a profit at the domestic box office, then it would make a profit on DVD, and that doesn't that that's not around anymore. What has kind of replaced it is the international market is really, really good right now. Uh, it's doing really well. So what studios are doing is they're they're basically programming for the international market. There are very few studio movies that are made that don't have the international market in mind. And, and so when people say, why are they only putting out you know superhero movies or big, huge tentpole films? It's because those things work well around the world. And what they're not making are some of the movies like some of the things that, that I've done. A movie like Big Fish, we have a very hard time getting made at a studio now. Um, you know, Milk, which is now made a, a decade ago, would, uh, would have a harder time getting made uh, today. It might get made as a Netflix movie or as an Amazon movie, but uh, whether it would get a, a big theatrical release, Part of the, the economics, to answer your question, is you can make a mo movie for 15 or $20 million, but to have a proper theatrical release now can 
add another $30 million to it. It's, it's, there's so much clutter out there in the world that it just takes more money for a film to stand out. And when you put all that together, and the fact that people aren't going to see movies the way they used to, it's it just, it's tougher to do. Um, that said, I'm somebody who encourages everybody to go see movies in a theater. And uh, Do you think this will change? Do you think it'll revert back? Or has it just been replaced by the streamers? I, I think, you know, I'm, I think it's such a great thing that there are places like Netflix and Amazon that are making all kinds of movies. And they're putting real money into them. And uh, boy, boy, do we need, we need that because uh, uh, the theatrical movie business is not what it was. That said, every year there are really cool, interesting movies that, that somehow make it through the system and come out. And that will always be the case. Just in general, what, what is your advice for young producers who are looking to get in the biz? Advice for young producers? I... I would suggest you know, sometimes I will meet a young producer who's you know fresh off the boat and say I want to be a producer, and I, while it certainly can happen, I I think it's you know producer to me is like the CEO of a corporation, and you you wouldn't you wouldn't apply your to be the CEO of some giant company without having some experience. So I I strongly suggest first working for a producer or at least working for a studio or having some real in the trenches experience because part of being a producer is being able to be a problem solver when things are going wrong on set. And if you don't have any experience, it's just hard to, to do that. So that would be my first bit of advice. My second piece of advice is get to know writers. Read a lot. Maybe the hardest part of my job is the amount of reading that I have to do. And I've been doing it for a while now and I still read all the time. And if I didn't read all the time, I think I would become a, a dinosaur in the business. And um, fortunately, I love reading great writing. It's frustrating when you're reading scripts that aren't so good, but you know, it's part of the job. When you get a when you get a script, a pilot, a treatment, whatever, what is it that says to you this is something worth developing and this is worth scrapping? Is it characters? Is it you know the just first the story? thing I look for is good writing, and part of that is is interesting characters. Characters that surprise you. I try to find originality in the things that I do, and you know if you're reading a script and you have a pretty good idea on page ten, exactly where that script is going to be on page one hundred and ten, uh, that's going to be less interesting. Um, I uh, fortunately I think the movie business has changed. I know, let's some of the superhero movies uh, not 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 as much but some of them yeah like like black panther felt very original to me but uh, uh there was a while when i think that that hollywood got a little bit formulaic and particularly in some of like the romantic comedies got a little formulaic which the sad thing is that sort of killed a genre that i love I, i'm a huge huge fan of romantic comedies now they're sort of coming back at, at places like netflix uh you know originality and a, and a story that surprises me and excites me and uh, that somehow I, I i feel like an audience will respond to emotionally well and if i respond to it emotionally and emotionally can be can be a variety of things but if something is stirred inside of you and you're like you you, you can't wait to see what happens on the next page can you talk a little bit about pitching either when you've had to pitch things or advice to people who might come in to pitch you something the art of it I, I would never make a pitch too long a pitching is is uh, about telling a story and it's figuring out how to tell a story in a way that's going to grab the other person most people who hear pitches hear a lot of pitches 
and you have to really grab their attention. And ideally, you want to have moments in your pitch that will excite them enough that they literally will lean forward because they're so excited about what you're saying. And it takes that that level of, of uh, in, you know, uh, whether intensity, excitement, whatever the, the, the word is, uh, to sell something these days. Uh, there's a lot of people in there, a lot of people out there who have an idea and they want to work in, in show business. And uh, if you're going to try to sell something as a pitch, you really have to grab the listener. Where do you see the business going in the next five years? Any idea? You know, uh, the business is changing so dramatically right now that this is what seems evident, that, that the business will be very different in five years. We don't know exactly how. It appears that we're at a moment when there are all these streaming services that are rising and there are several big new streaming services that are going to come about. There are probably more of those out there than the public has an appetite for, but we'll see. Maybe they'll all be successful. Um, my my guess is there might be a couple of uh, basic cable stations that will go away as a result of that. Um, there, you know, there was kind of a I thought sea change recently when there was a, a, a series produced by Greg Berlanti that was on Lifetime and it didn't do very well on Lifetime, a show called You, and the exact same show, the exact same episodes, were shown on Netflix later on and became an enormous hit. The Netflix audience had no idea it was ever on Lifetime. They thought they were discovering this brand new Netflix series. And Netflix, in one of their rare announcements, said this was, this was huge, huge numbers, made a second season, making a second season. And that, that tells you something, that there's a, a particularly a young audience that wanted to watch that show on the, the streaming service that they thought was really cool. Are there other suggestions you have for people looking to have longevity? in the business? You know, you had asked me earlier about, um, you said, made a comment about uh, uh, film and my taste. I I've always tried to make choices uh, uh, about projects that I really believe in. It's, it's hard to get a TV show going or a movie going. And if you don't do things that you love, then I think it's just much harder. Sometimes things come up that people will do for money. And I think if you do something just for money, that it might not come out well, and that can ultimately end up hurting your career. If people sort of say, oh, this is the, you know. The, the trick is if you're doing something and you're doing, and, and part of the reason you're doing it for money is, is you should have a, a vision for how to make it really, really good. Stay true to your own North Star about things and just don't Absolutely. give up. And, 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 and try to find things that you feel really passionate about. I'm just curious, who had the greatest impact on your life? This is a question I've been asked before, and I think people are going to uh, expect to me to name one of the producers that I worked for. And interestingly enough, it was my dad. And my dad uh, was not in the movie business. My dad was a newspaper editor and publisher but was somebody, I mean, my dad is still very much alive, so he's not, but, but he's, he's now retired. Um, but uh, everybody admired him. Everybody, people looked up to him. He, he was, had so much integrity. And he's somebody that I try so hard to emulate. And 
I virtually every day will have a moment I, when I will say, how would my dad handle this? Because I know that will be the classy way to do it, the most appropriate way, the most fair way. And uh, uh, if, if I can be uh, uh, half as successful as my dad at, at uh, achieving those things, then uh, it will be, it'll, it'll be a good career. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It was a pleasure. You're a gentleman. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for watching so many of my uh, shows and movies. I really appreciate it. No, the pleasure is all mine. Excellent. Thank you, Dan. And that's our show. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. And if you enjoyed this episode, please, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. It really does mean a lot to us. Also, be sure to follow our Instagram, at Movie Mentors Podcast, as we'll be releasing special bonus content from this interview and behind-the-scenes goodies on there. This episode was edited by Marcos Boutron Jr., music by Gabe Sokolov. Be well, everybody, and thanks for listening.